couple weeks ago, some of you joined us just to block up 19th Avenue at Congregation Beth Israel for this annual tri-clergy dog and pony show that Rabbi Kahana and Monsignor Brennan over at St. Mary's and I do together every year. It's kind of like the punchline to a joke, a rabbi, a Monsignor, and an Episcopal priest walk into a bar. Uh, classroom, in this case. We talk about one, a theme that we've chosen. This year our topic was the spring holidays because this is one of the years, it doesn't happen every year, but it happens with some frequency, one of the years where Jewish spring holidays, Passover and Shavuot, and Christian spring holidays, Easter and Pentecost, coincide. Uh, we, we celebrated Passover and Easter around about the same time, which means that in both cases we're counting 49 days for Jews, 50 days uh, down to Shavuot and Pentecost, which brings us to today. So over at Congregation Beth Israel this afternoon, they'll be celebrating Shavuot with, with all of the dairy-oriented traditional foods of that celebration, milk and cheesecake and blintzes and kugels. I'm making you very jealous, aren't I? <laughs> Well, we're not to be outdone. We've got strawberry shortcake in the parish hall, so don't worry about it. Red pinwheels lining the courtyard. This day that we celebrate, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes blowing into town and nobody quite knows what hit them. Shavuot and Pentecost are linked historically, right? There's a reason that there are a bunch of people sitting in this upper room in Jerusalem 50 days after Easter. They're probably there to observe Shavuot, which happens 49. Shavuot is just a, a word that means weeks, counting seven weeks of seven days down from the, the feast of the Passover over to this uh, ancient agricultural feast originally that commemorates in the Jewish tradition the day upon which Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai in a cloud of smoke with fire and brimstone and voices and all sorts of things. So the way that Luke tells the Pentecost story, right, is very much designed to be a kind of uh, reflection on, riff on, bookend to the Shavuot story, the story of the giving of the law, right? Luke has a pretty heavy theological agenda here. He thinks that what happened on the, the on the feast of Pentecost is just as significant as what happened when Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And the way that Rabbi Kahana talked about Shavuot, he says it's, uh, it's as much about um, a people getting their sense of identity and their marching orders, right? God takes the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, leads them through the desert, but this is the moment, the Feast of Shavuot, the, what happens 49 days after the Passover, this is the moment, Rabbi said, when they become a people. They receive the law from God, the thing that binds them together. They make a covenant with their God. The next step from freedom is relationship. This is the moment when the people get codified and crystallized as a people. Something similar is happening in the way that Luke tells the Pentecost story. This is scattered ragtag followers of a Jewish rabbi who are terrified and don't know what's happened. They've had these glimpses of him. They've had encounters with him. They don't really know what's happening. And Pentecost, the way Luke tells it, is their Shavuot moment. This is where the Spirit of God descends, just like God did on Sinai with fire and smoke and brimstone and all kinds of different pyrotechnics. And the people become a community in this case. A koinonia is the Greek word, a church. This is the moment in which their identity is formed. So we sometimes talk about it as the birthday of the church. I'm a little leery of that framework. I'm a little leery of a holiday that purports to celebrate the birthday of an institution that sometimes feels a lot more like the locked room that they're in and not like this holy mountain experience on Sinai. In some places, the Feast of Pentecost is celebrated by churches with you know, this big 
party atmosphere, red balloons, streamers, and banners. In the parish I used to serve in New Jersey, we would get a big sheet cake from the bakery, and we'd make some poor bakery employee write, happy birthday, church, in red frosting, put it out on the table, and we'd sing, happy birthday, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, dear church, happy birthday to you. We'd blow out candles, we'd hand out party favors. It tells you a lot about how we celebrate birthdays in the 21st century. Maybe doesn't tell you a whole lot about freedom and identity and the manifold gifts of the Holy Spirit that are being celebrated on this day. The problem with enshrining Pentecost as the church's birthday party is that it can tend to take what was originally a day of holy chaos, a day on which Jesus' followers were accused of acting like they were coming off of an all-night bender, and it turns it into a little bit of suburban kitsch, a kid's birthday party. The thing about the story of Moses on Mount Sinai that gives this day its ancient underpinnings and the story of the disciples in a locked room speaking a hundred different languages, neither of these are particularly cozy stories. The Holy Spirit is not really so much a, a gentle dove descending peace, peacefully on meekly bowed heads, right? The Holy Spirit is kind of like a raptor. She's like a falcon who extends her claws and violently seizes otherwise normal people with ecstatic apocalyptic visions of the end of the world. When Peter quotes the Hebrew prophet Joel to all of these onlookers, right, he's, he's quoting a text that is about the end of the world. I will show portents in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday. I mean, right? If this is the church's birthday, I don't know that a sheet cake is the appropriate way to commemorate it. This is darkness and blood and portents and fire and mist. There's a reason the color for this day is red. Red is the color of fire, yes. Red is the color of blood. Red is the color of martyrdom. There is nothing safe about the Holy Spirit. There's nothing safe about this day. You know, we've got flowers and hymns and all the decorous underpinnings of an Episcopal service. They've got cheese blintzes over at Beth Israel. In, God, in John's Gospel, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit using this funny Greek word, parakletos. Paraclete is, is a literal kind of translation of it. Sometimes we translate that as advocate. That's what we heard this morning, the Holy Spirit as an advocate. Sometimes we hear it translated as comforter. One who comes to us, you know, as the hymn talks about, from above, with, you know, ready to have us climb up into her lap or something like that. Advocate parakletos is actually a, a borrowed term from the legal kind of establishment. Parakletos is a kind of a defense attorney, right? Somebody who stands up to defend you in court against unjust claims that are made against you. But it can also be translated as comforter, right? Somebody who protects you from an angry world. Someone in whose all-embracing love you are kept safe. You are brought home. I think those are kind of different images, at least in English, right? The advocate on one hand, the comforter on the other hand, a defense attorney and a nanny don't really seem to go together. I mean, somebody at the 8 o'clock service suggested, well, Atticus Finch is kind of both of those. So I offer you that as a, as a possible reconciling of the tension between speaking out on the one hand and providing solace. Um, but there seems to me to be a kind of schizophrenic nature about this day. There's a tension that we're holding. It's a tension between a a birthday party where everybody gets a cookie, and a doomsday party where the sky fills with blood and people start speaking languages that the rest of us have never heard before. And somewhere in between those two prongs, we have our celebration. I don't really know how to resolve the tension between the cozy comforter and the fierce advocate, both of which are used to describe the Holy Spirit in this morning's texts. I don't know how to resolve the tension between a 
a day of darkness and thick gloom, the apocalyptic day of the Lord where everybody starts seeing visions and dreaming dreams. I don't know how to resolve that image of the day of Pentecost with Happy Birthday Church, this party that we used to throw in New Jersey with balloons and streamers. There's a part of me that is tempted to kind of, you know, and you know me, I, I kind of want to go into a Jesus in the temple moment and like stride into parish halls, turning over tables of cake, uh, which maybe would satisfy the drama queen in me, but is also a waste of a perfectly good birthday cake. Um, and nobody wants to clean up all that frosting. Preachers like me can sometimes tend to get a little huffy, little high and mighty about what we dismissively refer to, refer to as like the, the domestication of religion, the lion of Judah tamed for a suburban zoo. I mean, I don't know about you, like I want, I want Mount Sinai. I want fire and brimstone, not cheese blintzes passed around at a potluck supper. But that's the irony of the day of Pentecost or the day of Shavuot, which is that these two linked holidays, Jewish and Christian, what they're celebrating is the after effects of what happens when you have been freed from bondage. And part of what freedom means is that life is not actually fire and smoke and pyrotechnics every day. Freedom actually can look a lot more like cheese blintzes and birthday cake. I learned this when I was a, a college sophomore. I, uh, I was doing a discernment summer, trying to decide if this priesthood thing was really for me or not and uh, was assigned to this tiny little church. It was about 15 people in a tiny little town of about 900 people in rural Ohio. This was MacArthur, Ohio. The only stoplight in the entire county was right downtown, right by our church. Um, it was Appalachia. It was a part of the world that is then and now knew deep poverty and heartbreak and loss. And I stride into town with my scholarly resources under my arm, ready to preach academically sound sermons about the Trinity and justification and atonement and, you know, you name it. And these sweet, dear people put up with me, uh, lecturing to them about what the gospel means. I didn't know anything about what the gospel means, but they let me get away with it. They were so sweet to this 19-year-old kid with aspirations. And when I left, they threw me this party um, there were not that many people in this church, and they were mostly, like, I didn't know that they cooked, <laughs> but they did. They threw me this incredible party. The tables were groaning. There were cakes and pies and brownies and cupcakes and sweet cakes and sweet bread. I mean, you name it, right? Everything that you could make with sugar and butter was on these, on these tables. And I turned to one of the matriarchs of this congregation, this woman who had kind of taken me under her arm and kind of helped me figure out this world. I said, I can't, I can't believe all these food. Like, these people must have been cooking for days. And she said, oh, honey, this isn't just for you. <laughs> this, is, this is a potluck. Like, this is what we do. We do this because we love each other. And I thought, oh, <laughs> like... That's, that's what I've been here to learn <laughs> this summer, not how to preach academically sound sermons. That has stayed with me, that idea of the tables groaning, and I'm over in the sacristy waiting for the, the law to be delivered from the mountaintop with fire and smoke. I think, I think what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that there's a way in which what I sometimes think of as like the domestication of these ancient holidays, the cheese blintzification of the church, if you like, right? A world of potluck suppers and bake sales and polishing the silver and making everything look pretty in the midst of a tradition where we really are talking about fire and smoke and people being crazy. There's a way in which that very domestication is itself a sign of the Spirit of God at work. When Rabbi Kahana talked about Shavuot, 
a couple weeks ago, he talked about it as this meditation on the consequences of freedom, right? That freedom is not wandering away into the desert to do whatever I want to do. The consequence of freedom is a deeper relationship with God. And it's a relationship with consequences. It's a relationship with responsibilities. It has a lot to tell me about who I am and how I am to be in the world. I think that way of understanding the reflection on the, on the original day, I think that holds true for Pentecost as well. There's a way in which what happens 49 days if you're Jewish, 50 days if you're Christian after the main event, 49 days after Passover, 50 days after Easter, there's a way in which these lesser holidays are kind of wrestling in some ways with this question of domestication. How do we live an everyday life in the context of an event that has completely changed all the goalposts? Like, how do we do this thing of Monday morning when we've had an ecstatic experience on Sunday night? If Pentecost and Shavuot are about claiming the freedom that those experiences offer us and then moving out into the world, like, what are our, our marching orders? When Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, the first thing he does is not magically to appear to a thousand people on the top of a mountain and give them instructions, right? The first thing he does is to find his friends and take them out for breakfast. The consequence of being set free for the people of Israel in Exodus, for Jesus' followers gathered in this little room in the book of Acts, the consequence is not just that your world is turned upside down, but that the day after your world is turned upside down, you still have to find something to eat. And so all of the, like, the normal stuff in life, the eating and the drinking and the arguing and the laughing and the farting and the belching and the falling asleep for a Sunday nap after brunch, that's the sacred world. That's the holy world. That's the world of the everyday, and it matters just as much in God's eyes as the dizzying heights of the holy mountain. There's a sanctification <coughs> of normalcy in these latter holidays. The smoke and the fire and the drama, all of that's still there. But there are also cheese blinzes, and there is also birthday cake. Domesticated religion is sometimes frustrating to preachers like me who want a Sinai moment right at the top of the mountain every time. The amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is that when I expect her to show up in only that way, I miss out on a Holy Spirit who can work through cheese blinces just as effectively as she does through fire and smoke. Actually, cheese blinces, as I learned in MacArthur, or cupcakes or lemon bars in my case, can actually be a far more effective thing than a sermon when it comes to bringing people together. I mean, you pass a plate of good lemon bars around at a party, you create a little bit of community. That's how people's lives are changed not always by big inspiring ideas or by smoke and mirrors. Sometimes our lives are changed when somebody offers us a cookie. It's sweet and it tastes good. The signs of the Holy Spirit don't have to be clouds and thick darkness, the signs of the apocalypse every time. It's okay for the Holy Spirit to taste good. She can, till, she can still turn the world upside down, right? The young ones still see visions, the elders still dream dreams. And we can throw a party. There can be cake. When the Holy Spirit shows up, it is actually entirely appropriate. It is meat and right to bring cake. Amen? <laughs>